Greetings, folks, and welcome to episode 109 of the Tharbam Metal Podcast. I'm your host and guide on this metal journey, Daniel Cordova. In this episode, Evan Berry from Wilderun joins the program. Wilderun are a fantastic band from Massachusetts that combines symphonic folk metal, prog, black metal, all kinds of stuff into a very unique sound. They just put out their fourth album, Epigon, via Century Media Records. Evan came on to discuss that album, the pandemic's effect on the whole recording process and writing and all that, their recent tour, Beer, Atypical Instrumentation, the re-release of their breakthrough album, Veil of Imagination, and a lot more. Now before we dive into my chat with Evan from Wilderun, here's some of Wool Gatherer from Epicon. So, uh, Evan, welcome to Far Beyond Metal, the, the silliest little podcast there ever was after Bananas. Um, that's a reference for like four people, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Don't worry, well, thank you for having me, man. I, I, I'm happy to be here. Of course. Um, uh, you guys just put out a fantastic record, but I kind of want to go back a, a little bit before that. Uh, I know that you're fresh-ish off of a tour before everything hit the fan again. How was that tour? I imagine rather different than previous ones. Yeah, it was, um, well, it was definitely weird to be back on stage after almost two years. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those things where you get, um, I, I got like some of the initial stage fright kind of back that I haven't experienced in a while, which is kind of interesting. Like, I mean, I, I always get a little bit of stage fright, but, you know, back when we first started uh, pretty much 10 years ago now, you know, those first few gigs were definitely the most nerve wracking. And then you get used to it over time and you just kind of develop it. And, um, but then it's amazing what two years can do. Two years of not of not doing anything live, of, you know, not, not just not playing live, but also just seeing far less people generally. And then, um, and then suddenly being thrust into very social situations and performing and uh yeah it was a little weird i definitely the first few gigs were were pretty nerve-wracking i definitely got more butterflies in my stomach than normal um and we were also actually using uh, a lot of new tech it was the first tour that we had ever used in-ear monitoring and so it was it was that we had a, a new amp situation so it was it was a lot of things at once to add to the nerves and uh but we got we i would say maybe after three gigs i think i think the first i think the fourth gig of tour was in austin texas and that was sort of the gig where everything came together and everything just felt like okay we're finally back in the groove um so yeah but it was it it was weird it was uh and, and there was of course just you could tell at the shows too it kind of kind of varied depending on the show depending on the city but there was sometimes like a weird vibe in the room. You know, you could kind of feel like the crowds were a little more hesitant. 
people were just, you know, I think everyone felt that same strangeness or at least some, you know, more people than usual felt that same strangeness that we were feeling and just kind of had to get used to. But, um, but after, like I said, after a few gigs, we got in the groove, it kind of started to just feel back to normal. And, um, and yeah, then it was after that, it was pretty smooth sailing and it was fun and everyone on the tour was really cool. And we got to play, some really awesome venues and uh you know get out there a little more than we have before so overall it was definitely a success uh i recently had manuel from zealand ardor on the program and they were on tour the same time that you guys were and he was saying it was basically like living in a bubble breaking only to get like meals at a cafe but like not meeting fans and that kind of thing was that your experience as well on that tour Um, we, we kind of, it was like a little in between, I mean, we, you know, it was a really tricky balance to try to figure out because we were being as careful as possible, you know, um, and, you know, we were doing everything we could, you know, obviously just everyone was wearing masks all the time and, uh, and, you know, distancing when they could, but we also, we wanted to interact with some people, you know, so we, I mean, we weren't doing a lot of handshaking, you know, we weren't doing a lot of getting too close to people, but it was, you know, we were still trying to talk to people who clearly wanted to talk to us. Um, So, you know, maybe I think we were somewhere in the middle, like we probably could have been a little safer if we wanted to be really, really careful about it. But um we also could have been way more cavalier uh, than than we were. So we, we kind of just tried to toe that line, you know. But but it was there was certainly a lot of being in the bubble for sure, like just trying to play it safe a lot of the time and not doing nearly as much interacting and hanging out as we normally would. And you mentioned when you were hitting the stage for the first time in a long time that you had more stage fright than normal and that you still typically get stage fright. Uh, how do you how do you deal with your stage fright? Do you wind up t- channeling it into like, I don't know, something on, on stage that only you can kind of feel or something? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, honestly, most of it is just, you know, it... it is just the amount of times you do it. It's just repetition. You know, it's just something like the more times you, I I think for me personally, I actually don't know if I'll ever fully get over it. You know, like, I mean, honestly, I think it, a lot of it comes down to personality types. Like, um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a decently anxious person (laughs) just generally. Uh, and a lot of that is kind of social anxiety. So, and, um as is probably not at all surprising social anxiety and playing shows don't necessarily go hand in hand (laughs) that well um don't get me wrong i i love it and i it's one of those things that when i get past my anxieties i I, it's super valuable and i love it and i would i would hate to never play shows but there's sort of these little obstacles i have to get over mentally um and i don't you know i don't know if that'll ever be totally gone because it's just some of that's just my just me just my own personality and just how i deal with things but um but for me personally just staying trying to get out there semi-frequently um and and be just you know kind of obvious to say but just be really well rehearsed just be really prepared um you know try to talk to like 
I try to like talk to some people before the show. So it doesn't like, it sometimes feels weird to like get up on stage, but like not have talked to anyone in the audience beforehand. Like I find sometimes that makes it even weirder. Like you're kind of playing to this weird, like nameless faceless, which I get maybe, maybe some people would argue that would make it easier because then you could just disassociate. But I, I actually find it easier to like, especially if there's bare people there particularly to see us like talking to some people beforehand helps because it's just kind of I don't know for me it makes everything just feel more relaxed and human and then and then being on stage feels a little more fun so I'll do that sometimes um but yeah besides that honestly it's just preparation like there's nothing worse for to uh, heighten the anxiety if if you there's any part of your brain that doesn't feel totally prepared and some of that honestly is um, is honestly a lot out of your control a lot of the times because so much of that preparedness that is this show going to go well feeling has to do with like the specific venue and the crew and like the stage plot and just like technicalities that you can't really control. So a lot of it's just roll of the dice, to be honest. But, you know, you prep the best you can, talk to some people ahead of time, you try to get into the vibe of the evening and... And that's about all you can do, really. Admittedly, that was a little uh, of a self-serving question for me. My band's playing our first show, like at at all this uh, Saturday, and I was oh, in no a band. Wow. I was in a band before, and um, we were always well rehearsed. Our shows went pretty well, but what should have been our like biggest show that we played was like a this venue that's kind of a, a legend around here that's now unfortunately gone, but. Um, I ripped my pants putting my amp on stage and then had oh, to play the show with just like my ass showing and it feels like <laughs> I can't get worse than that. So I always, that's like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not super nervous about the show, but there's like some kind of nerves there, but I'm just like, I, don't, I feel like I showed my ass to people on a stage. So that's as bad as can be. Oh, <laughs> uh, Dude, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's, that's, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's any, Anything you can do about that, that's just that's just bad luck. I mean, I guess I guess you could just be careful about the pants you choose. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. But uh well, I'm I'm sorry you had to go through that. I'm sure no. there's some uh sure there's some PTSD going on. All, all good. Um, I, I survived and uh some people got a free show. But I, I might look into that whole talking to people thing beforehand because I I feel like even doing these podcasts, I kinda keep to myself a little more before I hop on a call with somebody, but I'm going to steal that idea from you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also just, you know, I, I definitely, I mean, maybe this isn't the healthiest thing, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll have a beer. I'll like have a beer before going on stage. If I have, sometimes I'll have a couple, but usually like I find the one, if I don't know if you drink, but, uh, but one beer I find this is just the sweet spot. Um, I, after a few, like a week or so if i'm really like if we're doing a tour or something i, I usually can do away with that and just, but like sometimes for those first shows you know i don't know sure. like a beer just can help that actually kind of brings me to something i was going to ask later um on the uh instagram for the band there have been a handful of posts where you guys are at like a, a brewery or some kind of like beer related thing are, are you beer nerds to some degree oh yeah definitely what are yeah, your styles are, what are your, what are your favorite places that you've hit Oh man, I don't know where to begin. Um, I mean, like any uh, very typical, stereotypical American craft beer nerd, uh, we're all definitely hopheads uh, for the most part. We're definitely 
into IPAs and, you know, a lot of, I feel like the, the, um, you know, the band formed in Massachusetts and even though we don't all live there now, like that's kind of still often our home base. And, uh, and, um, I feel like a, a brewery that we all really connected around was Treehouse Brewing out of uh, Charleston, Massachusetts. And they're just like kind of the kings of the New England style IPA. And so a lot of like good memories and, and, and nostalgia around them. And specifically in regards to like the band, like I remember like literally the last two times we've gone to the studio, we just hit up Treehouse before we go there and get like, you know, two cases or whatever, and just have it for like this time we're at the studio. And, um, that's, I mean, that stuff's great. But besides that, I mean, uh, Dan is first generation German. So he is a, certainly a lager wheat beer sort of, sort of man, as, as are we all, he's definitely turned us on to a lot of just the classics. And, you know, that's, if it's, if we're not doing like the American style, super hoppy or like barrel aged heavy shit, you know, we're probably just doing like a really classic lager, Hellas Lager, you know, Pilsner, something like that. All about so, those German beer purity law beers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, they're, you know, as far as like having easy sippers, it's kind of hard to go wrong with that shit. So. Yeah. Uh, so moving to the new album, I read that uh, Epigon, of course, was influenced by the pandemic, as I imagine a lot of art over the last couple of years has been and probably will be. Uh, but yeah. for you, how specifically has the lockdown and all that impacted this record and the band for you? Um, yeah, a lot. I mean, yes, yeah, so no, not surprisingly quite a bit. Um, I mean, I, I, I've said this before, so kind of repeating myself, but, um, Sorry. but I think that, I think that the biggest, the, the, the mentally and emotionally, like the biggest hurdle for me personally was the fact that, um, we didn't get to tour on veil of imagination very much um because and this is something I, I only really realized in retrospect like i didn't really think about it at that much uh, during like beforehand but as as the pandemic was going on and especially afterwards looking back i realized that touring i think playing shows touring anything live is is really like this it's sort of like a yin yang scenario with making a record and being in the studio making a record releasing it it's sort of like it's like a celebration you know like like it, you put in all this hard work and into a record and even though it's very satisfying it's probably the most satisfying part of music making is making a good record it's 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 you know it's, it's isolating it's it's a lot of hard work it's um it's not always the most fun even though even if it is the most satisfying and i think shows are this sort of like i said it's a celebration it's like it's a sharing with everyone it's you know it's the social aspect of being in a band as opposed to the, the isolated aspect of it and yeah and i just realized after after the fact that you if you don't get that you don't get that release of the celebration of the record. It's you feel like incomplete in a way. And it feels almost like the album cycle hasn't properly wrapped up. You haven't put like a nice, you know, bow tie on it, like to, to, to finish just that 
that cycle. So that was the biggest, that was the hardest thing for me getting into the process of the new record because I, I was conflicted for a few months once the pandemic hit because, I mean, there were a few months where I just literally didn't, didn't do anything. And I, I kept telling myself like, hey, like you literally have nothing else to do. Just like start working on new music. Like just get, you know, this is the perfect opportunity to get it going, right? You know, like what else, what else are you going to do except for just try writing and just try working on a new record but I, I just I, it took me a few months to really convince myself to do it because and I didn't really know why at the time I, I like I said this is more in retrospect but I think it was just because the veil cycle didn't feel over it had been too soon didn't get to tour enough you know I think we played six shows uh, we did like a mini tour. We got to play the, the 70,000 tons of metal cruise, which is great. That was awesome. But, uh, but then that was it. That, that was the entire album cycle. So that was the biggest thing. But then after, after a little while, we kind of, you just kind of accept it. And you, once you fully accept the reality of the situation, then started slowly working on it. And then we just realized like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta make this new record because otherwise we're just going to, waste a bunch of time and then the next record's not going to come out for like four or five years and we don't want that to happen so luckily um a lot of the material on epigon is is um kind of stuff that i had had in my back pocket that i um i actually originally thought was going to potentially be used for a different project which is why epigon i think has a little bit of a different flavor to it um and that was actually kind of a uh, uh, saving grace in a little ways. Cause I think if I had to gr just ground up, write all the, the new material at that point, like I'd, I'd probably still be finishing the writing process. Like now it's that. So, and then the new record, you know, still wouldn't be out until next year or the year after that or something. So, um, so it, it worked out honestly, like that I was really lucky that I had some of that material in my back pocket and I wrote some new stuff and it was kind of a hybrid of old and new material, but, um, but yeah, anyways, it was a little long-winded, but uh, the, that was that was the, the biggest emotional, psychological impact that the pandemic had on me personally. That actually seems even more brutal because to, to me and like to some circles I run in, Veil of Imagination is kind of the album that broke you guys. So to have it take you guys to another level and then have to stop seems extra brutal. Um, so that's... Is that also what brought on the, the re-release of it? Or is that just getting, you know, signed to Century Media? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, well, I think that the re-release probably would have happened anyways with Century because we just wanted a little more exposure. I think that would have happened no matter what. You know, we did a limited, when we released it on our own, we did a limited run of CDs. And it was either, you know, once we got signed, it was basically either um, but I, you know what, I'm forgetting the details, but I think part of the contract was that Century wanted the rights to Veil of Imagination. I, I don't even know if we would have had the option to keep it independent at that point. We, we do own the rights to the first two records, but we don't own the rights to Veil of Imagination. That was part of the, the contract. So I think that they would have wanted to do a, a re-release of that anyways. And, um, and that was good for us because we just wanted the there's only so much you can do independently and we just wanted to get the name out there more and it's the really re-release definitely seemed to get more people aware of the record and seemed to broaden the fan base 
even more. So, um, yeah, we're happy we were able to do that. Uh, I, I think that would have happened regardless of the pandemic, though. Yeah. Uh, the new record, like all your stuff, is very cinematic, which I know is an expected part of the band. Uh, but while listening to Wool Gatherer, I caught sort of a musical theater Broadway sort of vibe to the presentation of the song. Are you or any of the guys in the band uh, band theater dorks? Um, I not really to be to be honest. Um, okay. I did theater. I did theater my senior year of high school. Uh, one year, I actually really liked it, but I, I never really got into like musicals though. Like I, I, I preferred like just regular like dramas uh, generally. Uh, but I was in a couple. I was I was just kind of in the background of a couple of a couple musicals. I I was a uh, I was actually in. Uh, uh, Brigadoon during my senior year, and but I played just a speaking part. I actually didn't have a singing or any musical part during it, even though that is a musical. So I was just a, just a straight acting part. So that's the that's like the only <laughs> background I have. And then, but I never really kept up with musicals generally, and I don't think anyone else in the band is. So yeah, I don't know, but I know what you mean musically. Like I I, I think that that stems just generally more from our love of film music. Just, I mean, Wayne uh, is the, you know, he's definitely the biggest contributor to that aspect of it. I mean, his, his whole career has been in film and television, music creation. Um, and he is, you know, done the bulk of the orchestrating for the, well, he did all the orchestrating for, for Epigon, him and Dan has have shared those duties previously, but for Epigon, he just solely handled the orchestrations. So I think that's the biggest part of it. Um, but then, yeah, there's, there's some weird combination of the way that I write songs, the way that Wayne orchestrates our general love of film and just drama in music uh, that kind of creates that. I don't know, but yeah, it, it's more of a happenstance of all the combination of things that gives it that musical theater edge. Um, but it, I don't actually think any of it directly comes from any musical theater influence. Alrighty. Uh, yeah. I, I caught like a, for me, it was like a conversational sort of thing with the vocals and then it felt like a fan of the opera specifically. Um, but I, of course we're all going to get whatever we're going to get out of songs. Um, uh, well, I think that, I think actually just to, I, I would, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a little bit more like, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber, like probably had some more of the same classical influences that we might have. Oh, good know, point. Romantic era, you know, orchestral music, you know, things like, you know, Debussy or something like that. Um, so I, I, I don't know if that's true, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was just like a link in influences there, maybe. Yeah, outside of the actual scores from the shows, my Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, stops at Paul F. Tompkins' impression of him. So I, I can't even vouch for what his whole deal is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not honestly that too familiar either, but uh, vaguely what I know, would, you know, it could be something like that. In the press release for the album, Dan mentioned this is probably the biggest number of folk instruments you've ever had on a record. Uh, what sort of new instruments were brought in for this? And has that is that going to be a pain in the ass in the future as these songs are played and you have to like backtrack these or find ways to uh, cover them with guitars and stuff live? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we've always, we've always just done the back and track thing. Like, you know, we, we 
obviously we have a full orchestra on our records and we cannot afford that. So we, we have, we have fully accepted just the backing track game um, because there's just literally no other way we can do it. You know, like if we're lucky, one, maybe one show out of our entire career, we could, you know, spend way too much money and get an orchestra. But even that I'm unsure if we'll ever be able to afford it because it's absurdly expensive. Well, there are anyways, but because because of that, um, we we fully accepted the backing track game, and therefore we put the folk instruments in there too, because it's kind of like just one big thing, you know, the orchestra, the, the orchestra pieces, the, the folk instruments, some of the synths, they just kind of all live in there um, in the same place. So um, we would love to maybe do we can maybe at some point do like a, a chambery thing or maybe a, an acoustic set or something that's a little bit more rearrangement where it's not even a metal band and maybe we could get some actual folk instrument players on stage with us or maybe we could a couple of us could actually be playing those instruments uh alongside our other instruments but um yeah for now it's just it's just backing tracks but um as far as the actual instruments go the only new, well, some of the recurring ones, ones we use like on Sink at the Edge of the Earth that we just didn't fit on Veil of Imagination were like Hammer Dulcimer. That's definitely one of our favorites. I think that's probably our conjoined favorite uh, folk instrument because it's just so beautiful, even though it's a pain in the ass to play, but it's uh, it just sounds great. Um, that, mandolin, those are kind of the two staples. Um, and then... Uh, some slide slide guitar wayne, wayne is is good at the slide guitar um lap like lap steel slide guitar stuff which is on sick of the edge of the earth and we brought some of it back for this one some new stuff though um well uh, wayne had a um a electric lap steel actually on this one and there's like a, for example the uh the song this it's not really a folk instrument but it's sort of like a, electric folk inspired instrument is uh on the uh distraction three there's kind of a big guitar solo section when the band kicks back in during that song and uh and there's a joe and Dan, uh sorry joe and wayne trade solos and uh i think joe comes in with a normal electric guitar lead at first but then wayne comes in halfway through with his solo, and that's actually an electric lap steel guitar, so which is why it sounds, you know, more bendy, you know, a little bit different than a normal uh, electric guitar. So that was really cool. I really loved his solo there. Um, and there, there's some electric lap steel pepper uh, amongst the rest of the record. Uh, he, I think, the only other new instrument he used a barit a baritone electric guitar. That's just a heavier lower electric guitar we doubled that on some of the riffs um the only other folk instrument that was new was a custom instrument that wayne built which i for i think we're going to release a vlog at some point we're doing a vlog series right now so probably easier just to watch that when it comes out to see what the hell i'm talking about but it's like it's like an, it's like a um it's kind of inspired by like a Finnish cantile, but it's more like this Eastern European, like uh, plucked harp 
thing. I don't even, I, I, Wayne built it actually on his own, which is really cool. And he, uh, you can bow it or you can pluck it. Uh, it's on like a couple of tracks. It's not there very much, but anyways, there'll be some vlog that comes out. You could check it out a little bit more because I'm probably not able to explain it properly, but um, that was cool. We were, and I'm hoping in the future, maybe we could get more like custom folk instruments because that would be, that would be really fun. I mean, having your own thing that only you guys have, that's, that's the ride in itself. Yeah, exactly. There's uh, um, one band I really love. We all really love is Sleepy Time Grilling. Oh, I know they, Sleepy they, Time. Like, make all their own shit. It's like one of the cool, which is why they have the most, one of the most unique sounds ever. So, I mean, uh, we'd love to do something like that at some point. Uh, what is the importance of the Radiohead cover to you guys? Um, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I, I we have like, I don't, know, I don't know if there's any like deep importance to it um it's just like as with any cover like i just i have like a i have like a short or honestly pretty long list of songs that i at some point would love to cover like and it's it's hard to explain exactly what the decision making process is there it's it's just very kind of gut instinct intuitive sort of feeling about what what we decide to cover um but what I normally do when choosing something like that or when a song sticks out to me is I always end up like kind of mentally stripping away a lot of like the the instrumentation and the colors and the textures and the vocals of the original track and just trying to think of the song from a like raw skeleton way, like literally just thinking about the chords and the melody and the rhythm, like basically as if they were on paper as opposed to like, oh, it's a synth playing it or the vocals sound this way or whatever. I try to mentally just think of the raw on the paper music, if that makes sense. And um, and then from there, I try to imagine coloring it, texturing it with like the types of instruments and sounds that Wilderun typically uses or likes to use and seeing then mentally if i think it would work because a lot of song a lot of times i like i'll think about a song i'll be like oh i love this song i'd love to to see if wilderman could, could use it but then i strip it down to its raw harmonic melodic side of things and then i just realized like oh like wilderman would never use this chord or something um and, and that's a little bit weird too because my whole thing with covers is that i i my favorite covers are the ones where if you hadn't heard the original song, you might just think it sounds like a that band's song. I always like that. Like that's that's always my favorite. My favorite covers by other bands are always ones where if you just didn't know the original song, like you might just be, you might just listen to it and be like, wow, that was a cool song by that band. And then you happen to learn that it was a, a different song because I don't know. We we want every song we make to feel like it fits within our world especially if it's like you know it's on the cd so if you're listening sometimes i'm like listening to records by other bands and like a cover will come in and it'll kind of take me out of the vibe of of the band And, and sometimes that's okay like you know covers and bonus tracks are your place to experiment and try new weird things but i always get them i always think it's the coolest when it kind of just seamlessly blends with the rest of it 
So that's, that's what I always like to try to do. And I think that there's more opportunities to do that than a lot of bands realize. If you just really strip the songs down to their fundamental core skeleton and then recolor it in your own unique way that you already like to do as a band. So um, I don't know if that was a little bit convoluted way to explain that, but, um, but that, that's how I think of it. And for some reason, I was listening, I mean, I love Radiohead. They're one of my favorite bands of all time. And, uh, and I just heard that song and I thought of it in that way. And I started messing around with it on guitar and it just clicked. And yeah, we're, we're happy with how it turned out. It's, it, I, I think it works pretty well. Uh, before I move on to my final question, what is the chord that Will the One won't, won't play? I'm sorry, can you say that again? Uh, before I wrap my, with my final question, what is the chord that Will the One Run won't play? Because you mentioned that when you were talking about stripping a song down, you're like, oh, we wouldn't play this chord. Oh, the chord. Um, I mean, well, it kind of, you know, it kind of depends on context. It's it's hard to say like a specific chord. Like Like a lot of times whether or not a chord is right or wrong kind of depends on context. Like it could depend on what it comes after, what it comes before. But um, so it's hard to say like, Oh, this is a chord, but like, you know, there's a lot of like, like, yeah, uh, like, like minor major seventh chords or something like, well, no, we've used those, but like, or like a, like a minor, um, like a dominant five chord for any, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many listeners out there know what I'm talking about, but like, um, the it kind of just again, it depends on it depends on the context. But there's certain types of like, especially seventh and ninth chords that, while in sometimes we love using, if it's just in the wrong place, it could just give you like a a weird atmosphere that we just don't. It just doesn't work for our sounds. But yeah, that's sorry. It's hard, that's hard to explain without like a bunch of context around it. But hopefully, that sort of makes sense. <laughs> no, I, I feel like I got you in your head about something you said in passing. It's just I got stuck on it myself. Um, yeah, in other words. Alrighty, well, thank you for talking to me today. I'm glad we we're able to figure this out because I there's a lot of back and forth getting here, but we got here and it's great. So, uh, thank you. Yeah, for- yeah, thank you, man. I, I really appreciate it. This was fun. Yeah, thank you for being on my show. And uh, should you guys be hitting the road soon and come my area, I'd love to leave to you know experience the band live because i have yet to so uh good luck there you know and uh hopefully if when things get better that'll happen where what area are you in again if you don't mind i i'm in the greater sacramento area but i go to the bay pretty frequently so like you guys play the dna lounge and i think i found out like a week later oh shit no way okay well i'm sure we'll be we'll be back um that was a that was like a that was the tiniest venue I think we we played on the entire tour. So were you guys upstairs? Upstairs. Oh, yeah. the upstairs was, room. Yeah, it was claustrophobic. It was honestly, and it got like really, like um, ruckus. Like 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 the end of the show. Like people were kind of going crazy at that show. Like in a weird, uncomfortable way. So I don't know. You might have just dodged a bullet. Anyways. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back though. Probably hopefully in a better room, and uh, and we'll yeah, that'll be fun. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Uh, you have a good rest of your day. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. All right,
Epicon by Wilderun is out now via Century Media Records. You can grab your copy now at wilderun.com and follow the band on Instagram at wilderunband. Now, if you want to keep up with this program, you can head to farbymetalpodcast.com. There, there's a store link. There's a place where if you're in a band, you can hit me up to be on the show. Past episodes, so much fun to be had. And the theme song is Far Beyond Metal by the band Strapping Young Lad from their album The New Black, courtesy of Century Meter Records and Devin Townsend himself. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 